0: Welcome to the final Working Lunch podcast of 2017. It's been quite a year, so we've got quite a spread on the table here. Wendy's Chicken Nuggets. I'm sure many of you are asking, final show, Chicken Nuggets, really guys? The answer is yes, because something special happened with Wendy's Chicken Nuggets this year. Franklin? Nugs for Carter. Carter. One of the greatest hashtags of all time. The
1: campaign that broke the internet.
0: A kid with like 130 plus followers now has what? Let me take a quick look here. 115,000. Anyway, he asked Wendy's how many retweets would it take to get a year's supply of chicken nuggets from them? Wendy said 18 million. He got about 3.5. They gave it to him anyway.
2: Yeah. Reposition the brand. You know, what's Wendy's known for? Frosties and square burgers. And it, it in a couple of weeks, entire country knew they were a major player in the Nugget space. Power of social media.
0: And so in honor of Nugs for Carter, we've got this full spread of Wendy's chicken nuggets on the table. I'm sure that Wendy's is truly honored by this working lunch privilege. Let's do the show. Can I
2: help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again.
0: From the Home Office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. We're closing out 2017 with a look back at the year that was and was not in the world of policy and politics affecting employers. On this year-ender podcast, we'll wrap up the legislative scorecard and put a bow on the top issues like wages, wage shaming, paid leave, scheduling, and much, much more. We'll talk about the biggest winners and losers of 2017 and provide an early look at the momentum heading into next year. Hi everybody and welcome to the show. I'm your host Sean Kelly alongside aligned partners Franklin Coley and Joe Kefauver. And our DC expert Joe Renzel is ready in the bubble. First, we want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. Let's get right to it. Okay, so we're starting this 2017 year in review podcast just hours after the Republicans got their tax cut plan passed. Did you ever, Joe Kefaver, think a year ago that we would be sitting here talking about them actually passing any sort of bill of uh,
2: significance? Well, I mean, yeah, you would you would have thought they would have passed a lot more. I mean, <laughs> here they're on the last week of the year and they got their big their first big bill done. Um, so. I guess you know high fives are in order, but if you're a, an operator, entry level employer, you're 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 pretty darn happy about this about this tax bill. Uh, I think the real the real issue is what are the political implications? Does it does does it change? You know, this is a, a a package that's largely unpopular. It's very popular with a certain group, you know, Republican primary voters and business owners and so forth. Largely unpopular with population. What does that mean for political momentum for next year? Is there some, is it real, is it perceived? What is it, does it have an effect on the outcome of midterm elections? I don't know. Um, but you know, these guys look at poll numbers all day long, they look at focus group numbers all day long, and they seem very happy. So I, I think they have confidence it's gonna resonate.
0: Franklin, it's a heck of a way to close out a year. What do you think it all means to operators?
1: Well, I think a lot of operators are probably sitting down with their accountants to figure it out right now, but I think a, a lot of operators are gonna be happy. Um, To Joe's point, the the kind of question is, what over time, how does this play out? How does this issue play out over time heading into the midterm elections? And there's a big question mark by that. But I think generally operators are going to be going to be happy with this.
0: Joe Renzel, how are things looking in the D.C. bubble following quite a spectacle at the White House with the GOP lining up to praise Mr. Trump?
2: But you're a lot of martinis in Washington, (laughs) D.C. last night. Oh, yeah. I was wondering why Renzel got home at 11 this morning. It's cocktail party <laughs> season anyway. Uh, it's
3: holiday <laughs> yeah. party season. Renzel? There's always martinis in D.C. Come on, guys. You know that. Look, I mean, I think they, they deserve a little bit of a high five, although it is the end of the year. Um, they uh, were able to come together and push a pretty robust proposal across the finish line. Offer uh, had it right earlier, though. I mean, you would think at the beginning of the year that they were lined up to do a whole lot more uh, that they just didn't get done this year. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, from – activities kind of more behind the scenes in the in the labor space and, you know, certainly the efforts uh, to roll back the overtime regs uh, from a wage perspective, you know, those are all things that, you know, I think at the end of the day operators, you know, should make their lives a little bit easier, um, a little bit more efficient. And, you know, hopefully that trend will continue.
2: If operators ever had a better year at the Department of Labor, I can't remember it. I mean, they, a lot of things happen. And if we thought, you know, if you – Early in the in the spring, you know, we didn't have a labor secretary. Remember, we had the whole Andy Puzder, you know, episode. Costa was late getting, getting, um, getting seated. He was very pragmatic about filling his staff. So the Puzder thing, how long ago does that feel? Yeah, it seems like ancient history, doesn't it? (laughs) But so so you think about what's happened to the DOL. All these things have really happened in the last five, six months. Um, and so it's been pretty amazing with what, what's going on there. So operators should be very happy about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean,
0: it, the whole process felt like it was real slow. And then right in these last couple of weeks, it was hurry up, hurry up, hurry up.
1: Yeah, Labor Department and the NLRB, it just took a while to get everyone seated. And they're still staffing. Just this week, there were two more uh, confirmations approved to positions in the Labor Department. So, I mean, they're still filling out. Uh, but the agencies are starting to get enough people in there that they're they're hitting their stride, so to speak.
0: We'll save 2018 predictions for another podcast but real quickly guys what does this kind of momentum do heading into 2018?
1: Well they're going to need it to tackle some other issues that you know have broader appeal and they're going to need it quite frankly probably to deal with issues. I mean there's some of the issues in tax reform even that it's it's unclear how all that's going to play out like ACA healthcare, you know, the individual mandate is struck down in the tax reform package So are they going to go in and and you know try to put in a, a fix to stabilize the markets? some of the states are already stepping up and saying that they will Institute an individual mandate kind of like Massachusetts did to stabilize the market in their states. So uh, You know, they're going to need this momentum to address a number of different issues and a number of issues that that reach across the aisle heading into the midterms.
2: And and where do they go with it? I mean, you know, we've talked a lot in this office this week about do they go after, you know, I don't want to speak for Joe Renzel, but he of the mind they may try to tackle entitlement reform. I don't know what that where the political, you know, rationale for that is seems like a bridge too far. You know, did you go after infrastructure? Well, we just we just gave away all the money we spent on infrastructure. So where do we get that money from? So I, I don't know where they go with this. You know, does this momentum build the wall? Does it make him tougher with North Korea? I, I don't know. I think it certainly emboldens him. I don't know how much it emboldens Republican leadership. I don't know how, where they can go. But Renzel, you're the D.C. guy. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think they they certainly have motivation to continue to press whatever advantage they think they have right now I agree with you on infrastructure I think it's gonna be a challenge I think you're also gonna have a reality where you know whether the implications of tax reform you know are felt by the average everyday consumer uh, or taxpayer you know early on in the year or not you're gonna have states reacting to that as well we talked about that before we talked about the financial implications on some of these states how they may turn to the employer community you know to cover that some whatever losses might occur or be perceived to occur so I mean there's going to be an ebb and flow um, you know in terms of what the reaction is to some of this quote-unquote progress um, but at the same time I think you know Republicans got to feel pretty good about where they're standing right now um, but I mean I just go back you know in, in the conversations we've had over this last year fellows where you know, how many distractions came down the pike. how many things, you know, when, when we were supposed to have an infrastructure week, we're talking about, um, you know, Charlottesville, and, and it just a lot of, of kind of chaos going on. Um, it's, it's somewhat amazing that at the end of the day, they were actually able to do something on tax reform, even though it's one of many things they wanted to accomplish this year. All
0: right, we have got 12 months to get to for the legislative scorecard, and we're gonna begin with wages as we typically do week to week. Uh, Franklin, let me start with you on this one. How would you score how would you score things for the employer community at this point uh, on on the conversation over minimum wage?
1: The national conversation I give it probably a, a C. I mean the employer community just continues to lose on this conversation. So there's really no change in that. I mean minimum wage polls well, the $15 an hour minimum wage which was an absurd concept 5 years ago is now very close to the political mainstream, and so we have, you know, the employer community just, this is a losing issue uh, for the business community. That being said, there were a couple silver linings, if you will, this year, and there were a couple of very credible studies that came out that demonstrated that, you know, look, there is, there is a ceiling to these things, you know, these minimum wage increase, where you start to have Impacts on an employment and it starts to actually hurt workers. And so one was out of the University of Washington and then one was the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. I think that this body of evidence is going to grow over time as more and more of these minimum wage increases go into effect. We have around 28 states, I think, now that have minimum wages that are above the federal. So as those phase in and phase up, we're going to probably have more and more studies, and we're going to get a little more balance, I think. And we're going to get some more education. And so I think over time people are going to understand some of the trade-offs associated with increasing the minimum wage or, you know, putting that mm-hmm. on top of employers.
0: Joe Kefauver, in Montgomery County, Maryland, we saw a county executive kind of pull back on the, on going too high on the minimum wage um, only 2 months later uh, find himself agreeing to $15 correct so in the beginning it was kind of like let's let's be smart about this can we handle it but then he lost out in the end anyway well, is, well, is that going to happen other places do you think
2: well i think i think what's happening let me hit pause on the answer to that i think what's happening around the country is the marketplace is driving these wages f- higher faster than the law, even in places where the high minimum wage is, you know, is kicked in. So the Seattle minimum wage right now you know, is, Washington State minimum wage right now is $11 an hour. You can't find any help for $11 an hour in Washington State, right? Um, and so elected officials, even though they may intellectually say these could have some negative ramifications on my city, the marketplace is already going there in a lot of places. So you think about Montgomery County, Maryland, you know, Montgomery County is one of the, the, the five wealthiest counties in the country. The, the marketplace there is around there anyway. I was with some restaurant operators uh, last week in Dallas, and they said their average back of the house, kitchen staff, getting in the door was $14, 15 $16, bucks, okay? Why are you as an elected official going to fall on the sword fighting a $15 minimum wage when you can walk down out of City Hall to the, First restaurant you get to, and they're already at 13 or 14, you know, you know what I mean? And so I, I think the, the 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 nature of it is, is changing not only acceptance of a $15 minimum wage from a political, public opinion point of view, but from an economic point of view. I'm not advocating restaurants go to that. I'm just saying I think the point is becoming more and more moot. I think the economy is making the point moot. We're, yeah, but,
1: where, where, where that won't be the case is where um, – states like California or New York or others that are not at 15 but they're close to 15, where they have statewide mandates for 15. And yeah, there's a lot of places in California, and there's a lot of places in New York state where that is definitely the case, but there's also a lot of places within those states where that is not the case. And so I think I think, over time, over the next couple years, I'm hopeful, I guess, that we're gonna see real credible research uh, around those areas both areas new york city we should see how it impacts new york city we should also study how it impacts some of the more rural environments in new york state where it should have a measurable impact because the starting wage in those areas is going to be much less than 15 dollars an hour and i think that's what will be really interesting and kind of define this conversation moving forward for many many years
0: Joe Renzel, coming back to you in the bubble, uh, what happened at the federal level that you'd say is the biggest win for entry-level employers?
3: I think it's definitely overturning the overtime regulation from the Obama era. uh, That was uh, set at a level that was pretty high for most operators. Uh, It's been rescinded, and it's likely the Trump administration will take another look at it, but what they'll do is set it at a a more reasonable level uh, probably sometime next year.
0: Franklin or Joe, either one of you take this uh, at the state level. handful of states enacted new wage increases. Franklin, what were they? Let's, yeah, let, sure. let's list them off.
1: Okay, before we do that, I want to hit one other thing in the federal. Yep. The Labor Department is also rewriting the tip-pulling regulations, which is very important to casual dining or fine dining chains. So headed to the state and local level, um, yet again kind of piggybacking off of overtime, there were two states, New York State and California, where the overtime is close to what the overtime level was going to be at the federal level if the Obama reg had stood up. So that's, that's pretty high in those states. Drilling down a little bit more into the cities and states that enacted minimum wage increases in, in 2017, Maine, Rhode Island, Cook County, you know, Cook Chicago's County? Cook in Cook County, yeah. County yeah. Illinois, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, sweet old montgomery county maryland <laughs>
2: home sweet home
1: so you'll notice this is not a long list and that is primarily because the fight for 15 campaign was so successful over the past three or four years and a lot of states and municipalities have already enacted increases
0: there were also some preemptions
1: in arkansas missouri and iowa uh, preemptions were passed and in in certainly in the case of missouri and iowa there are municipalities that were pursuing increases higher than the state rate, and so those preemptions struck down those uh, those city wage
2: rates. I think it says what we said in the beginning of the year that we're gonna the, the the business community is gonna win the majority of the legislation, majority of the regulation, and the majority of the litigation, but we still lose the conversation, right? I mean, there's a, there's a very few, ha- there's a handful of jurisdictions that actually did it this year. A lot of jurisdictions tried and lost, and yet the national conversation, the acceptance of a $15 wage is at an all-time high. So who really had – if you're playing chess, then, you, then the, the $15 advocates had a good year. If you're playing checkers, then the business community had a good year. Let's switch over to paid leave,
0: and let's kind of keep this and, at a – go ahead. Frankly. And
1: nowhere is that more profound than in paid leave. Yeah. So the conversation, the political conversation in paid leave is basically over. Over. Not an if, it's it's a win and a half. We have Republicans and Democrats and, and every elected official from Mark Meadows' Freedom Caucus chair in the U.S. House singing Kumbaya and, <laughs> and pushing for paid leave policies. Now, their approach and the implementation of what it looks like is very different, but they're all for some sort of paid leave. So this conversation's over. That being said, you know, when we start getting into the details of the policy, that's where rubber meets the road. And this tax reform bill actually has embedded in it paid leave tax credits. And that's where Republicans want to take this conversation. They want a national preemption. If you participate in a national paid leave program, then you are protected and you can opt out of any city or state mandates. And they want tax credits to kind of lessen the burden um, on employers, lessen the cost for these programs on employers and incentivize them to offer them
3: just one more point to make on the federal side I agree with everything franklin was saying just the fact that they did the tax credit in the tax reform does that take any momentum away from you know another bill that was introduced in the house to actually allow for that safe harbor for companies that offer so you know allowing them basically preemption away from the, all the state and local efforts which is something companies are going to want for ease of compliance um, and whether or not there's enough motivation on the issue to get that across the finish line uh, still
1: remains probably a question. How about
0: at the state and local? How about at the state and local level?
1: What well, we've seen over the past couple of years is a different approach. That that is a more more of a mandate, just a, a straight requirement, particularly in the paid sick leave side that employers absorb the cost. On the parental leave side, in some states, uh, you'll have a split between employers and employees. You know, splitting the costs and paying into a fund, not unlike Social Security, that employees can then draw down on.
0: Joe Renzel, on the paid leave preemption front, what were the what were the several notable states that have that now?
3: Yeah, some of the similar ones we talked about earlier, but specific to paid leave, you had Arkansas, Iowa, Kentucky, and South Carolina, um, and and that's I think really important in terms of not allowing some of those cities to move ahead with a different uh, patchwork of, of different rules and regulations associated with it. It doesn't mean the state can't go forward and set a floor themselves, um, but those states are pretty conservative in political leanings and are less likely to put something on the books that they feel is might be onerous to businesses. I think also important at the, at the local level um, you've got a defeated ballot initiative that occurred in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a very close vote there, but brought to the people. Now, they might take action anyway, uh, the city council, but it's important to note that that, that ballot initiative was defeated. You also had uh, some vetoes secured in, the, in Maryland and Nevada. Over proposed plans that actually made it through the legislature. So those conversations will still go on next cycle.
1: Yeah, and interestingly, in Maryland, literally right now this week, we have Prince of George's County, which is passing their own pay leave law. And they wrote into the law that it will go into effect after the end of the state legislative session. So essentially what they're trying to do is force the hand of the state legislature and the governor, really, to pick this issue back up. The governor has put forward a proposal in the past. It's different than what was passed up by the state. You know, they have a veto override vote. So it's going to be crazy in the coming weeks and really, I guess, a couple months here in Maryland on this issue. You know, one more thing to note before we go off of paid leave. Um, Rhode Island, Washington, California, all passed paid leave. You know, some of those were expansions to an existing paid leave program this past year.
0: As far as scheduling is concerned, each year more jurisdictions consider restrictive scheduling mandates. And if you've got an operation in Oregon, this, this piece right here matters a lot to you. Joe Renzel, what happened there?
3: Yeah, had Oregon becoming the first state to pass a statewide bill. Every other jurisdiction had been a locality, mostly located on the West Coast. Uh, this was a negotiation with the business community um, they wanted to avoid Portland going forward with a with a probably a more onerous bill I think the biggest thing that came out of the legislation was what's known as a voluntary standby list so this is where employees can kind of sign on and and basically say we'll take shifts you know because we want the flexibility and we want more hours and the employer can go ahead and plug them into the system without having to do penalty pay as long as there's reporting requirements and other things associated with it. So, you know, not the best case scenario, certainly. I mean, operators want to do their own thing and, and have their own systems in place. Um, but for a state like Oregon, it's probably the best thing you can get out of. And it does have the tendency or potential, rather, to become a model uh, in other jurisdictions across, this, across the country. You had um, California attempted to do some work on this issue, but were uh, stalled again for a second year in a row. They'll probably uh, do a statewide effort next cycle. And then you had New York State and New York City um, taking different approaches that kind of remain to be seen how that's gonna play out. Um, But yeah, a lot of different jurisdictions at the local level, um, looking at scheduling mandates uh, this cycle, but Oregon was definitely the main story. And
1: with with Oregon, you know, smart employers are working with operators on the ground there to try to implement and comply with this law. This is probably going to become the model. And so, if there are little problems or little tweaks with implementation in the ground or record keeping or whatever else, employers need to figure that out right now and try to get a fix not only in Oregon, but when this conversation migrates down to California or up to Washington State they need to push for those little tweaks and changes to be incorporated into that legislation as well. So 2017 story on scheduling is definitely Oregon. And um, you know, looking into 2018, employers would be wise to use operations there as a way to kind of crack the code on how to deal with this in the future.
0: Moving on to joint employer, this was one of the biggest stories of the year, the ruling from the NLRB. Uh, the give us the 10-second version if you can, Franklin, on what the decision means.
1: So this is uh, the Trump NLRB has returned to the the old standard of direct and immediate control, the pre two thousand and fifteen standard, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, this is this is what the franchise community, this is what the entry level employer community has been clamoring for, for well, since 2015. So this gives clear lines of distinction between separate business units. It does not expand joint employer liability across them, a- except in the circumstance of direct and immediate um, control.
2: So this is a big deal.
0: Joe Cave, obviously you were interested in the headline of that story, but it's kind of like how this played out, which is really interesting
2: to you. Yeah, hear. I mean, I you know, we talked earlier about, you know, the, the slow year legislatively. It's been a very fast... Year in terms of the regulatory process, not just the DOL and you know tip regulations and all kinds of stuff, but at the NLRB and, and changes happen very quickly. And with the new board seated and a new general counsel, the, the rate of change has been fast and far-reaching. These are not small-time decisions. They're going, they're they're, they're adjudicating. This is joint employee. This is about. Shared liability, ownership, entire business model structures are being reversed, you know, back and forth over, over the course of multiple boards, over multiple years. But for, for operators, you know, there's a, there's a sense of clarity and a sense of security that there's not going to be a mo- the ball's not going to be dropping every day, that there's not this sort of Damocles hanging over top of them, it's going to be different tomorrow than it was yesterday, it'll be different down, the- there's stability. and you know business people even with bad news business people want to be able to plan and predict and manage risk right and the old board did not allow business leaders to plan predict and manage risk and And now they can
1: the labor community is going bananas over this um and I will say that the NLRB has moved swiftly they have struck down a lot of the Obama era rulings and decisions um And and that in a fairly radical way, reaching back and pulling up new cases. But they have returned, they have just overturned departures and precedent that were set during the Obama era. They have not radically set new precedents themselves. And so as we're looking into 2018, will the Trump NLRB radically set new precedents that you would think are more employer friendly? Whereas just until now, they have been returning to old precedents. And so that's what we'll kind of, at least I'll be looking for in 2018.
2: What are some of the other big wins this year? Kefauver? Yeah, I don't want to lose sight of, uh, you know, we started off the year with a pretty big win over the banking and financial services industry with the whole, you That's know, something you don't say often. You don't say that very often. We took on the mighty banks and, and, and beat them back. And um, that was pretty big. Pretty big, you know, political victory for for entry-level employers and for operators. Renzo, I know. W- 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 any anything to add to that? Yeah,
3: just you know, Republicans were pushing through a response to the Obama-era Dodd-Frank uh, law, which uh, you know navigated through the financial crisis, um, and a big piece of that was repeal of what we fought for, what the merchants fought for, uh, in terms of credit and debit card fee reform uh, way back in 2010. So we defended that. Um, Republicans understood that they could not put that to a floor vote and have success so they stripped that language out and that was a big win like you guys said for merchants and I think coming out of that debate you know they've got a little swagger for them and uh, are looking to talk about how they might be reforming uh, the credit card side of things moving forward in 2018
1: one thing to note when the choice act died one of the things that was included, which was a victory, you know, and or having the language stripped out was a victory, but one of the things that was included in there was language to rescind the SEC pay disclosure rule, which is going to force public companies to disclose the the gap or the, the ratio between uh, executive pay and median frontline worker pay. And this is going to be a tough reputational issue for a lot of entry-level employers. Remember, and this is for
2: publicly traded companies.
1: Publicly traded companies, for entry level employers that have uh, a lot of entry level jobs that are you know at kind of a starter wage level, this is employment. This is going to present some some reputational challenges. The last thing I would say on that, we saw a lot of states consider legislation this year that would attach a tax to that ratio. So if that ratio was greater than one hundred percent then a tax would be attached to that. We saw Portland in 2016 passed uh, a surtax like that. Nothing got past this last year, but I can guarantee you that they will be back under consideration in 2018, and I would be surprised if no jurisdictions acted on it.
2: But the important part is when this data starts hitting and becomes public, that you are gonna see a conversation bloom just prior to the 2018 midterm election cycle about CEO pay disparity, wage inequality, it's really playing um, into a bad narrative for the employer community and a good narrative for the labor community. I can community. see Bernie Sanders right now. Oh my goodness, it's it's just, it's it's just it's hitting on a platter. Um, and, and you're going to, to Franklin's point, states are already getting into this wage shaming kind of kind of space with taxes and disclosures and other things so that will be an issue on the back end of 2018 that we'll be talking a lot about you'll be seeing operators and their communications teams need to get prepared because the back half of 2018 there's going to be a national conversation around pay disparity
0: okay guys time for winners and losers of 2017 I have a feeling that uh, this one's going to get some pushback Joe Kefauver let's hear it who's the winner of 2017
2: i, I got to believe Donald Trump's the winner of 2017. Donald J. Yeah, I mean, he. It is he,
0: hard for me to hear you even say that. I can't believe that's a out of doesn't matter whether out. you're
2: a fan or not a fan. You have to acknowledge, you know, if you hate the Patriots, you know, they're still—they've redefined how you play football. All and right, this so guy we're has comparing changed, Donald Trump to the Patriots. I mean, I'm just saying this guy has changed the political landscape. He's changed the political conversation. He has changed his own party. He has changed our relationship with— allies and enemies and so forth i don't know that one person in one year has ever brought this much change to an entire one year is
1: key so i agree with you i think you're right but the sample size is small yeah
2: it seems like a win on the short about the winner this year i didn't say for the winner for the next five years next decade next generation who won the political game this year and what's interesting he won with chaos that's his brand he is chaos
3: Well, that's the point, too. If you had asked that question a month ago, two months ago, you know, he wasn't winning. I think, you know, it's all about this last quarter. He's pulled in a couple of big plays, and, uh, you know, things are riding high. But I think those chickens come home to roost early 2018.
2: I don't think there was any point during this year, no matter what poll numbers say and popularity ratings, there was any time in this last year that you could have had an election on the spot that he wouldn't have won again. I absolutely believe that. So— you had, you had the same reputational ratings in the campaign. You had the same popularity rate. I mean.
1: He was running against a terribly flawed candidate was this thing. I know. I, 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 listen, Donald Trump has. <laughs> all that base. experience
2: and all those degrees, a terribly flawed candidate. But, no, you uh, know. You,
1: you, well, you know, her unfavorability was as high or higher than, than his. And that was a challenge. So I. If he I think, runs against her. Yeah. yeah. Donald <laughs> Trump's base is solid. Absolutely right? solid as solid can be. There's all 32 no percent of them. There's no doubt. But it's but, not
2: 32% on election day when it matters.
1: It's when there's Yeah, a but he's not running against
2: Hillary Clinton things. ever again. Right. So So Republicans have proven in this election this year and all these special elections that they're, they're, when it comes to voting they're still going to vote as Republicans. So Republicans are still going to vote for him no matter what. How many Republicans abandoned Ed Gillespie in Virginia. He ran as the Trump candidate. Zero. It's just more Democrats came out for the Democrat than usual.
1: I don't I mean, His I don't, numbers
2: were higher than any statewide Republican ever. I, yeah, the Republicans I think a
3: are, percentage of Republicans that voted for him that didn't want to. And I think those folks are either going to
2: stay home
3: or not vote for him next time around. But that's, that's, that's way really far. There's a long. threshold. I mean, that's that's what people admit? said in,
2: in, in 2016. There is a threshold,
1: you, you, you know, I mean, Alabama would be an, an instance of where, you know, people left the left the party. That was a threshold, and that was a, that was a big threshold. It's a bit of an anomaly. But, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. This, this yeah. will all be settled in the midterm elections.
2: All um, right, Donald, so let me more let, so let me bring the— Three years Who's the big winner? So who's the big loser this year? Who's the big loser? World peace. Decency. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy. De-
1: The establishment. I I think the establishment, establishment, Republican and Democrat, and party order, which has run Capitol Hill, that is the loser, but that that has been the loser over and over again. Just Donald Trump... So if the Republicans in the Senate had
2: a leadership vote today, would Mitch McConnell be leader?
1: That doesn't matter. What matters is that his power and the power of the Speaker in the House, and this goes for minority leader in in either House either... their power is eroded because Donald Trump and others are changing the nature of politics. And, and party position and unity and structure and, and order means a lot less when you don't need it to win. And so, you know, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have not controlled those chambers like their predecessors have. And I would say it'd probably be the same, you know, when, if and when the Democrats take over, they're going to have similar challenges controlling those chambers. I think the establishment is the loser, and I think that's a trend line that's going to continue to play out.
0: All right, guys, let's do some New Year's resolutions real quickly before we close out the show. Okay. Joe Keyfever, do you have any?
2: I'm going to resolve that Renzel works past 5 o'clock one day.
1: I mean, that's ridiculous. There's no. I'm going to resolve that Renzel works past 1 p.m.
2: <laughs> Joe Renzel?
1: I quit. <laughs> <laughs> New Year's resolution, (laughs) I'm out.